Airbnb began in 2008 as a monolithic Rails application, serving the simple purpose of listing homes for rental. Over time, the number of listings increased dramatically, as did the number of people who were renting. With that scale, the Airbnb Rails application had to be broken into different services, and entire teams were built out to focus on challenges such as pricing, application infrastructure, and search. Sarabi Gupta has worked at Airbnb for the past five years. She joined in 2013 to work on the search team and has worked on different teams at Airbnb over time. Today, she is a director of engineering leading the homes business for Airbnb, which includes growth, search, hosts, pricing, and business travel. So Surabi is in charge of a lot of different areas of Airbnb. Surabi has helped scale Airbnb through a hyper-growth period and joins the show to share those experiences. One distinct area that we spent time on was Airbnb's search engine. Surabi formerly worked at Google, and she described how the engineering problem of a search engine for homes differs from a general-purpose search engine like Google's. Before we start the show today, I want to mention that we're looking for sponsors for Q4. We have around 50,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis. And if you are interested in reaching that volume of users, we are probably a cost-efficient option to advertising compared to certain other outlets, like perhaps conferences. Conferences are quite expensive to sponsor, but Software Engineering Daily, you can reach more engineers than a conference, and it's probably going to be cheaper. We're also hiring. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs and look at our openings for roles such as writers and podcaster. We have very high standards for the podcaster that we are hiring, but we are looking for a podcaster. We're also looking for a few engineering roles, so please check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Surabhi Gupta, you are a director of engineering at Airbnb. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. So you are a director of engineering, and you've been at Airbnb for more than five years. How did you get started at Airbnb? Sure. So I maybe I can start with a little bit, actually, what I was doing before that. I spent six years at Google, and I worked on search, and I worked with you know the search ranking team, and then on a project that became part of Google Now. And, you know, I was always fascinated by travel and data. And I actually had made a booking. This was earlier in 2013 with my family. We'd gone to Venice and we just had this really great listing. And then I got introduced to Airbnb. And that's sort of what got me interested in the company. And just as I spoke to more people and I heard about the vision, it was very exciting. And it was something that I wanted to be a part of. When you look at the search challenges of Airbnb, what's unique in the set of challenges in doing searching on Airbnb? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And, you know, I remember early on, I used to talk to a lot of candidates that, you know, would say, okay, you know, you work on search at Google or, you know, one of these other companies. And, you know, how can it be that different? But it actually, I like to think of it as, you know, this traditional search where you, you know, express what you're looking for. You know, you expect the most relevant result right at the top, right? Like if you go to Google, you don't want to click on the second or third result. You just want to expect the top result at the first position. And if it's something that you that you're not happy with, you'll reformulate what you're looking for. 
Um, if you think of uh, mar- marketplace searches, you know, it's it's typically based on what's available, right? What's the available supply and you want to match supply and demand. And I would say that Airbnb adds another layer to this, which is that both sides of the marketplace have preferences. So what this means is that a guest comes in, let's say, you know, I want to travel. I was on that trip to Venice. I had, you know, certain expectations of that trip, where we wanted to stay, how many people were there. It was my family. So, you know, that meant that we, um, you know, we wanted to stay near where there was good food available and maybe not too loud. But then the host also has preferences. The host also, you know, might say that, hey, actually, my place is, you know, good for these types of guests or, or maybe, you know, guests that are traveling. Maybe it's actually great for families. And for another place, you know, it might, they might have a lot of stairs inside, might not actually be be perfect and so you know this is what makes fundamentally what makes airbnb search very complex which is that you know the preferences that a guest has are very complex and then matching those with what is right for the host you know that's where the magic comes in Um, and i think a lot of people sort of assume that okay you know if you've worked on traditional search where you know you're optimizing for that first click it sort of translates over to a marketplace I would say that, you know, that is also another layer of change where, you know, for Airbnb, we are optimizing for that booking, right? And that process of searching, figuring out what's right for you, figuring out the inventory, and then making the final booking, that entire process, you know, can take multiple days. You know, typically you think of, or or people are not used to thinking of search as this, you know, long process that, you know, you finally want to get the booking conversion, so naively, somebody who's thinking about search at Airbnb might say, well, it's just a matter of star ratings, and is it a positive or negative review, and you kind of mix that with a geolocation search, and voila, you've got a search engine. But actually, it's much different because in Google search, you are not supply-constrained. There's no problem with how many people click on a web page unless that web page was behind some limited bandwidth connection or you know didn't have a CDN or something like that with Airbnb you are actually supply constrained and so you can't give the same listing to multiple people on the same day yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you're booked, that place is, is gone, right? And, you know, you know, we've invested a lot in helping hosts, you know, how to manage their calendar. We have a lot of pricing tools available, you know, just helping hosts be more successful. And yeah, I mean, all of that absolutely adds complexity to to the search process. So you've got these different sources of data that can contribute to a good search ranking. How often does that index get updated or built or in the year or so that you were working on the search team how did that search indexing infrastructure change yeah so you know one thing is that for us it's incredibly important to have real-time search which means that you know if somebody makes a booking you want to make sure that your index immediately gets updated to make sure that you only have listings that are available, right? Like you don't want to find this great listing. And then, you know, when you're trying to book it, it's like, oh, oops, sorry, actually, the dates just got booked, right? That's not a good experience. So I would say that it's it's super important for it to be real time. So that has just been sort of baked in as one of the, the, the key constraints and has always been part of our indexing system. And I would say the big change that happened in our architecture was probably two years ago, where we, you know, we just had to scale our systems. You know, we are fortunate where our product is, you know, every transaction is worth a lot, but it's not, 
that we have, you know, hundreds of billions of documents, right? Each listing is, you could consider it as a document. And so, you know, we had to go, when we built out our sharded search infrastructure, that was a big change to how we did indexing and how we, you know, re-architected, re-architected search. Were you using Elasticsearch? No, we weren't. We use Lucene. We're built on top of Lucene. But I would say the complexity for us is that we have a lot of complex filters that we need to apply. Um, So if you just look at pricing and availability, we offer hosts many different rules to do each of those. So with pricing, you know, you might say that, or or actually, let's talk about availability. You might say that, hey, I actually don't want back-to-back bookings. I don't want, you know, more than 10 days of the month booked. You know, we give you the ability to set all of these rules, but then that means that, you know, the indexing system needs to keep track of all of that. And, you know, it's just, I think as this got more and more complex, uh, we just had to build our own custom filtering logic. It sounds like there's, if you compare Airbnb to something like Twitter, You want your search index to be strongly consistent, although that consistency might be easier to achieve than something in Twitter because the volume of transactions is lower. Yeah, the, our volume is is significantly lower than Twitter. But, you know, for us, it's about complexity of the data. What, what do you mean by that? So just the example I was giving you with the, the calendar rules or the pricing rules, mm. right? You have a listing um, that, you know, is available for a certain number of days in the year. And if there's a booking, then it, it changes the makeup of that calendar, right? Because somebody might have a rule, you know, what I mentioned earlier, which was you don't want back-to-back reservations, and so then that changes the, the makeup of your calendar. And, you know, this is all, it has to be dynamically done. You have to keep recomputing this. So I would say that that, for the way I think of it is it's, it's fewer documents or fewer listings, but each listing has many different instances, right? Because it's available for many different days and that can, that can change. Now, how far does a rule-based ranking system take you? Because I think of Airbnb as a fairly new domain even today after it's been in the market for a while and it seems like you would you know there's a trade-off between how much machine learning you would want to do because you you kind of want to keep it explainable you kind of want the search infrastructure to be understandable so it's easier to study but maybe there are good ways of of introducing machine learning in a controlled way that that keep the search index construction model understandable. Did search start to involve machine learning when you were working on it? Or was it just kind of a straightforward rule-based ranking system? I mean, when I first started, it was a rule-based system. And then we moved to a machine learning model. I think it was sometime in 2015. And, uh, you know, part of it is that because the ranking system actually uh, tries, is trying to do this two-sided marketplace matching. And it's also trying to take into account, you know, not just bookings, but cancellations, rejections, you know, can you book it instantly? What is the likelihood of a five-star trip? It's a very complex interaction model. And with a a rule-based system, I think can only take you so far because of that complexity. Um, And so what we found is that, you know, in 2015, when we moved to ranking to a machine learn model, we actually had significant gains. And, you know, I think our, our ranking team has been the most predictable team in terms of driving business impact, just continue to do so. How does that marketplace matching work? Like if I, because, you know, you don't know in advance where I'm going to search. So you can't, you, I mean, I, I'm assuming that for me, Airbnb doesn't have, or maybe you do have a global ranking that gets generated that, you know, you know, 
in advance and you have it pre-cached, there's a ranking for all of the listings that Jeff could consider and it's pre-calculated in order of how much I'm going to like it. I'm, I'm assuming there's some set of characteristics that you can pre-calculate for me and then some set of characteristics you can pre-calculate for all of the listings on a regular basis. And then the real time is when I'm searching, it's more of, of the matching. Like maybe it's like you search within a geo and then you take that geo and then do kind of a, a marketplace matching system within the geo. Is that, is that accurate? I mean, I think you're asking, you know, there's always a combination of, of features that you can compute offline and things that you do online. Right. So, so yes. And I think that part of, you know, what you're also asking is how much personalization do we do? And, you know, what we found, for example, is as somebody is, you know, narrowing in on their search, you can see that, you know, the number of times somebody has viewed one listing becomes very predictive of the final booking, right? Because if you like a listing, you're going to keep coming back to it. So, you know, this is what I think of as short-term personalization, which is trying to take into sort of account, you know, your, just what you've liked in that session or in the few sessions. So more contextually, the general infrastructure challenges at Airbnb, I think, were mostly being solved by a team that was building infrastructure on Mesos. And you were coming from Google where you had like all the infrastructure was really well laid out. Google had had plenty of years to build this infrastructure layer where people could easily provision services. And there's all these rich, rich, it's like a platform as a service on steroids at, at Google, as I understand. And at Airbnb, they were probably still in the process of rolling that platform as a service experience internally. How did the the infrastructure accessibility and the experience of spinning up infrastructure or just dealing with infrastructure, how did it compare between Airbnb in those early days versus where you were coming from at Google? I mean, it was a very big difference. And I, I think what's actually interesting to talk about is, you know, the evolution that we have gone through in our infrastructure here. You know, I would say that you know, every year feels like a big change, but definitely over the last two years, we've we've sort of, you know, changed our architecture quite a bit. So I can share a little bit more about that because I think that it's an interesting transformation that we've, we've had to go through. You know, we historically have been in a monolithic Ruby on Rails uh, application. You know, we had a few services that were, you know, built outside of this monolith search and pricing just because of the scale. But, you know, otherwise it was largely a monolith. And what we found over the years was that, you know, there was just so much business logic coupled with you know all of the front end logic and you know talking to the databases and there was just all of this logic inside of the monolith uh, that you know code ownership became very unclear which meant that you know things like performance bugs we just started to have all of those other problems and you know what we realized was that we really needed to sort of you know start evolving our infrastructure and so about two and a half years ago we started this team called core services and I would say that was step, you know, one in this journey, which was we wanted to make sure that the core data that everybody wanted to work with. So that is, you know, what is a listing? How do you store a listing? How do I add a field to a listing? You know, that was its own service that that and, and the service owned its own data. So it wasn't a shared database that had information about listings and reviews and reservations and user and all of that. It was just there was, you know, a database for all of the listing data. And so we had this project where we started pulling out 
components like this and made sure that all reads and writes went through these services. So we did this for listing, we did this for pricing, availability, reservation, user reviews. We're still sort of fully transitioning into it, but you know, this was sort of, you know, a massive effort that I think was, you know, the foundation for some of the other work that we wanted to do, which was, you know, last year, we sort of said, okay, you know, we've done the core services, but we actually want to pull out, you know, all of our presentation layers as well. So, you know, essentially, you know, we would make sure that our overall systems weren't or or we weren't really going through our monolithic app for most of the critical flows. And, you know, we actually made this an engineering wide mandate. We got, you know, every team really, it, it wasn't just, you know, that you could say one team could have done this alone. I mean, every team had responsibilities and everybody had to work together. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that uh, go through this transition. And I think that we definitely sort of have been on this journey as well. And I think it's, 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 it's a really positive change. Like, I'm glad that we, you know, started executing on this when we did. And then within my team, I run engineering for homes. Um, I actually um, have, you know, had a central sort of team that, you know, helped out all the other product teams and making sure that they were building out these services, the dependent services with the right architecture, that the consistent standards were being followed. Because I think, what you want is you don't want to trade one set of problems with another. And so you want to make sure that it is like such a big change is coordinated. What kinds of standardization was being introduced across the company between those different services? Yeah, I mean, the standardization is even just, you know, how do you do authentication, right? Like there's one person should be building an authentication service. You don't need multiple people doing that. And so even just having that as a first step, the high level architecture of what are the common pieces that everyone needs? And let's make sure one team is tasked with this. So I would say that's, you know, that's, that's a very important step. Um, the other is when you're writing a service, what do you use for, you know, to define the APIs? What do you use for inter-service communication? How do you structure the code within the service? I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of these decisions that need to be made. What language do you use? Right? And, you know, you want to make sure that all of this can be managed. So there's somebody out there that is working at a bank or an insurance company, and they're going through this process of how to break up their monolith into some services and some front-end business logic that's going to make things easier to work with going forward. And they're in this constant push and pull between... How do we communicate with all the different stakeholders and how do we continue to iterate on new features that the business side is demanding while we're trying to do this refactoring? What general advice would you give to people who are trying to go through that migration? Um, I would say that this can't just be a side project. You know, sometimes I hear people ask questions of, okay, how do you make sure that this becomes a company-wide priority? You know, can we just set aside, you know, a couple of engineers to do this? And, uh, you know, I would say the answer is no. You have to make a very conscious decision on whether you want to make this change. And if you do, you, you sort of have to be all in because everybody's workflow will change in this new world, right? Even the way you think of your developer infrastructure, right? Where if you build it for a monolith, it's actually very different from having many different services. And so you want to make sure that, you know, there is a clear mandate because otherwise, you know, the effort just won't be successful, 
Um, and then, you know, people will say, oh, we can't do this because it's not going to be successful. You know, it's like the, the project can absolutely be successful, but you, you have to make sure that you're giving it the space. Um, and, you know, frankly, you have to also have to get people outside of engineering convinced, right? Because if you're going to be allocating, you know, a significant portion of your engineering to make this change, you know, everybody else has to understand why, you know, other parts of, you know, development are going to slow down. Was there a prioritization of which services got created first like when you were trying to break this into a microservices or service oriented thing was it like let's start with something that's really non-business critical or was it the whole organization all of a sudden or not maybe not all of a sudden but was just gradually like we're going to be moving into services like let's reorg let's focus on this like how did that mandate overall strategy the high level strategy manifest so there were two engineers that came together and did a pilot for one of the core pages. Because, you know, I think that you want to make sure that the new sort of proposed structure can work for critical pages, right? If you do this for non-business critical pages, maybe it doesn't have the scale, maybe, you know, it, it just might not be the right test. And so... Wait, so you st- you started with something that was, that was mission critical. Interesting. Because you just, just stay on that point for one second. I find that really interesting because that completely contrasts with the early like Netflix story of moving to microservices and they're like, let's start with the job board because it's very simple and it's not mission critical and it'll be comfortable to do it. But instead you started with the uncomfortable part. I think it depends on what you're trying to validate, right? Like we knew that we could build services. This wasn't the first time we were building a service. So that wasn't a question for us. It was more about, can we pull a presentation layer out that has a lot of problems in it right now with code ownership, with complexity, and so that's why we wanted to make sure that before we get the whole organization, you know, on this sort of journey, we wanted to make sure that this could work for a critical page. And and I think it was, we almost had to make the change, you know, because it was, it was becoming difficult to sort of for engineers to, you know, be able to push code to production. But, you know, when you have hundreds of engineers working on one monolith, it, it actually, it just slows people down. So I think we sort of, we knew that we, you know, we wanted to make this work. And, you know, I would say that we, as we embarked on this, I think the team had spent, you know, maybe, you know, four or five months. And it was pretty clear that, you know, this was going to head in the direction of being successful. And, you know, at that point, we sort of said, okay, let's set a goal for 2018. This was, you know, I think in September of last year, of the prior year. And we said, all right, let's, we didn't say that like 100% of all code has to move out of the monolith. We actually just said, you know, let's pick these four core pages on the guest flow and two on the host flow, right? So we we scoped it and we said, let's get all of the dependencies sort of implemented as part of this. So in, we, we did scope it out in that way. And then, you know, right now we're trying to figure out, okay, should we, you know, what should we do about the long tail? Those are the conversations we're having now. Wow. Okay. So when you said we want to make sure we get all the dependencies covered, you're talking about like the the databases. Like we want to we want to make sure we're hitting the host database, we're hitting the guest database, we're hitting the homes database. The way we think of services is there's the data layer, there's the mid-tier layer, and the presentation services. And so the data services are actually the ones that talk to the database. They own their own data. So we had moved those out as part of the core services team effort. So so those largely didn't, I mean, you know, we have a team staffed up on it that continues to be lots of work, but, 
you know, that was largely... Was decoupled. It was, it was decoupled. And that, that had started a year and a half, two years before this effort, this other effort. And so, you know, we had the data layer underway. I, I think that the hardest part actually was making sure the mid-tier was coordinated because I think it's very clear that, okay, you know, the listing page is going to have a presentation service. But then all of these presentation services will call some common mid-tier services. And so you want to make sure that, you know, how you do listing permissions or, you know, that, that's one example, but there's a lot of, of these, well, I call them dependent services, but mid-tier services that, you know, you want to make sure that you can understand that, oh, these presentation services have the, the same use case. Let's not build two different services or two services that overlap like 80%. You know, that can happen oh. a lot. Right, right. Because so the like the listing presentation service is aggregating data from the pricing service and the deliver the latest photos service or the uh, description gathering service or so, you know there's like four or five different services and then you know you you have some thread that gets spun off to all of those within the the presentation service and then it makes sure it is aggregating all of these and keeping a, a reasonable latency and has some failover and, and stuff. Yeah, I mean that's definitely part of part of what we care about. So you went from the search team to the marketplace conversion team. It sounds like in some ways the marketplace conversion team had overlap between what you were doing on search because in search to some degree what you're trying to optimize is a conversion. You want somebody to search and find something that they are willing to to buy and to stay at. I, I get, I'm assuming that's not the only thing you're optimizing for because if you just got them to buy something and then they had a terrible experience, that would that would not be a good outcome. What does the marketplace conversion team entail? Yeah. Um. So actually, yeah, I realized that I didn't actually talk about you know my progression within Airbnb, but yeah, I was managing the search team and then. I took on the umbrella team, which was the marketplace conversion team. And then actually fast forward a little bit and we moved into businesses last year. And that's when I started managing engineering for the homes business. And so I can I can definitely talk about, you know, marketplace conversion. That area was responsible for search, pricing, the booking experience, and also sort of, you know, where the core services team lived. And, uh, you know, those were some of the areas that, you know, then I was responsible for. And it definitely helped a lot having um, the experience from search, just because, you know, you think of many aspects of the marketplace. Did that marketplace conversion team get get spun up? Is that when you, you joined it or was it already in existence, from, like separate from the search team? It was, it was in existence and search was part of it. And then I started leading that team, I want to say, I think in 2016, What's the interaction between the business side and the engineering side with a team like Marketplace Conversion? Yeah, maybe I can talk about the homes business, actually, because, you know, what we did then is that we formed these businesses that actually run, are responsible for their own P&Ls. And, you know, we definitely, it's not just an engineering product team. It's actually all aspects of what it takes to run the homes business. We have somebody from policy. We have somebody from, you know, the customer support team. We have legal marketing. You know, there's many aspects to what it takes to run a successful business. And so we have, you know, all of these people that come together um, to make sure that we are, you know, not just thinking of one aspect of, of you know, what somebody needs to book a home, um, but we can actually take a more holistic view. Sure. Give me an overview. Sure. So the homes business, you know, it is the core business. And it's it's what Airbnb started with. 
And just as we've grown, you know, we have our policy team that that works with different cities and makes sure that, you know, we can do what's right in each city. We have, you know, we're spending um, money on marketing and performance marketing. And so we want to make sure that, you know, our engineering team can work with the performance marketers, right? So I, I think what you what you find is that, you know, you do the best work when you bring the right skill sets together. And it's not just engineering or product that helps drive that forward. Homes is one of the verticals. And then some of the other verticals are like experiences. And, and then I guess there's probably some other businesses that are not uh, fully public yet. Like I think of homes as that's like, I think of that as everything. That's everything I use on Airbnb, right? Airbnb's ambitions are, you know, to really think of travel as a whole. And in fact, you know, our experiences business launched in 2016. And, you know, we're seeing really great growth there. It's, it's you know, lots of great experiences. Um, and so that's definitely, I would say, you know, a big sort of a big area of investment. We also have our Lux business, which is, you know, the really high end places. And then finally, we have China, which is, you know, a geographical focus. Ah, yes. Okay. Now, as you have seen the company from so many different angles, and you've also worked at Google, I'm sure you also spend plenty of time talking to other people at other engineering companies. You know, I'm I'm curious what you see as canonical problems across technology companies uh, these days. And as as one example to kick that off, that I'll that I'll maybe bring bring up to you is that a challenge that I have talked to a lot of enterprises about recently. So uh, there's obviously like the, we've got a monolith and we're migrating the monolith and that's that's challenging. There's also like the data challenge. So so plenty of these companies like legacy enterprises. This is true of legacy enterprises, but it's also true of of newer of somewhat newer companies like Airbnb that the challenge of accessing data, permissioning the data throughout a company correctly you want to have data scientists who can have free reign over the data. They can explore the data. They can have insights about it. Maybe they can build machine learning models against it. This collection of problems where it's, you know, you've got ETL, you've got data engineering, you've got data science, you've got business analysts, you've got a VP of marketing, perhaps, who is brilliant at marketing and can think in mathematical terms, but has no idea how long it takes to access a data report, or they don't know how to get get at the data report. So I think of the data platform as one canonical issue that that companies are uh, large enterprises or and I guess enterprises large and small are, are encountering these days. Now just use that as a, as a kicking off point. Maybe you could explore that subject or if you have other canonical things that you're seeing either through the eyes of Airbnb or your other conversations with other companies. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I'll say is that any company that goes through hyper growth will have to tackle many problems, both organizationally and technically, meaning that, you know, your systems don't scale up as quickly as the number of people you have. And then you have a lot of people making a lot of changes. And, you know, that just necessitates kind of re-architecting your system, you know, even just redoing things like your performance review process and how you recruit and how you bring in people, you know, just every aspect, uh, how you evaluate people internally. So, you know, I, I just want to say that, you know, all hyper growth companies will sort of have challenges, both on the technical front and just on the organizational scaling front. And, you know, I can definitely go deeper into some, you know, of the technical areas. Please, whatever's on your mind these days or whatever you think I might hear from you that we might not hear from other companies. 
or from for any from other individuals? Okay, maybe I, I can share like a couple of areas that I think. I guess we went into monolith a lot, so so monolith to to SOA. So that's definitely one big area that you're right. You know, and everybody sort of goes through the transition. And you know, I've given you I've given you more context there. Another one that I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out is how to have high quality of their data. And what that means is, you know, you touched on that with sort of ETL and data engineers and all of that. Um, I just think of, you know, what is the architecture that's going to make sure that when data lands in the warehouse, it is high quality that you can, you know, have tests against it. You can make sure that when when the data is there and the job is complete, that you know that, uh, you know, it meets all of the requirements you have, not just in terms of SLAs, but also in terms of the quality. So I would say that's an area that, you know, we definitely have been thinking about a lot. And, you know, what's interesting also over there is that's an area that also changes when you build these services, right? Because, you know, earlier, if you just have, you know, one big database with all of your information and there's one monolith writing to it, then, you know, the way you sort of write to your data warehouse is different from when you have many different services. And the reason for that is, you know, when you have many services, that own their own data, you want those services to write directly to the data warehouse. And so that is definitely a change, again, that we, you know, we've defined and that we are beginning to make. So did you say you want those services writing directly to the data warehouse? You know, what you don't want is this like translation layer where you have these services that write to the database and then from the database you get these mutations and then you recreate the business logic, right? You don't want to create duplication. And so you do want services to be able to, you know, eventually write these mutations to the data warehouse. And there's, there's a lot that goes in that process. But, but all I'm saying is you don't want, you want to avoid duplication of business logic. Can you tell me more about the patterns by which different service teams get their data into the data warehouse or how it makes its way into the hands of business analysts or machine learning developers? Yeah, so we have what's in place today and then there's, you know, the the architecture we we want to move to. Um so the the way it works today is that, you know, we have these services that write to the database and then we look at, you know, the logs from the database and and have, you know, a lot of hive scripts that that sort of recreate all of that business logic sort of transforms that data into the schema that, that you know, what we call as core data. So that is sort of roughly the architecture today. And then, you know, from, from core data, there is, you know, downstream sort of scripts that, you know, convert it to derived tables. And, you know, from there, then, you know, typically people do their analytics and machine learning models um, over that. But, I, but we are definitely revisiting that entire pipeline to make sure that, you know, it can sort of support the scale we want and the testing we want and the, and the reuse, the code reuse that we want. So when you look at Airbnb's infrastructure and you look at the amazing managed services that are available to cloud providers... And you, you know, you think about your time at Google and the and the services you had available at Google. I realize that was five years ago now. Do you get the sense that the cloud services that are available to developers are they nearing a place where it is on par with what you have available to you as an engineer at Google? Or like, to what degree is this Google infrastructure for everyone? Is this actually coming true? It's hard for me to say because the thing is systems keep evolving so much, right? And there are certain things that are just a standard now, right? Like how do you how do you do inter-service communication? Uh, there's, you know, Thrift that a lot of people use and, uh, you know, it was 
you know, prior to that at Google, we had protocol buffers. So, you know, things like that are definitely standardized. And, and I would say infrastructure just as a whole is constantly maturing and the open source sort of technology is very good. And, you know, we use, we are on the, on AWS and, you know, so are a lot of companies. So I think all of that is definitely, is definitely great. Um, but, you know, I think that it's also just how long you've been working on a problem, how many engineers you have working on it, right? So even when I joined Google, the engineering team was bigger than, than where we are at Airbnb now. So I think it's it's also interesting to just think of, you know, the scale and, and how long you've, you've been doing something. And you're right, like I haven't been at Google now for five years. But, you know, when I was there, I felt that, you know, open source was, it, it wasn't quite at par. But, you know, also in the last five years, there's been a lot of advancement in just what's out there in the industry. So I don't know, I'm actually curious to hear from a current Googler, you know, how they think it compares. Yeah, I would be too. <laughs> Maybe I can get an anonymous source. Those are in these days. So management, that is, I'm assuming, a lot of what your time is spent on these days. So Airbnb has been in hyper growth for a while, and you know, if you if you were to not delegate properly, your work would just get impossibly complex. What what have you learned about delegation or or building ways for you to to stay sane while your responsibilities have increased, the scope of the company has increased, the population of engineers has increased? Do you have any tips for managers out there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, for me, it's felt like a different job, you know, every six months. And part of the reason is that, you know, what we I, I sort of uh, touched on this earlier, but when you have a company that's growing so fast, you know, you need to figure out, okay, is recruiting a bottleneck? Is the way you onboard engineers a bottleneck? Like there could be bottlenecks at many points. And, and it's almost like every six months you want to sort of rethink you know, how you're doing things. And so we've definitely had to go through a lot of that sort of change. And I would say for me, I think what's been helpful is actually, even when I do my staff meetings with my directs, just aligning on, you know, what are the shared problems? What are the biggest problems? And then who within our teams we can empower to take on a problem. So I think that getting that process going is very important because, you know, I alone or even my directs and I alone, we cannot solve these problems. And so, you know, the best thing we can do is find or empower people that are already excited to work on this, right? And give them a chance to really, you know, channel that energy into, you know, coming up with a new proposal. And so that's definitely a model that I have tried a lot on my team, which is, and you know, I had this realization also when I had this eng manager come to me and say, hey, I'm looking for some opportunities, you know, what can I work on? And I realized that actually, you know, there was so much to work on. The person just didn't know what what would be you know, the highest impact project. And so, you know, even just making it clear that, hey, you know, these are the areas we think are worth working on, working more on. And, you know, here are the opportunities available. If you're interested, you know, do you want to work on them? So I think that, you know, getting that going is is definitely super important. And then, you know, I think just also more time management, you know, it's like, I think it's an area everyone can do more in, you know, myself included, you know, every few months, I sort of I try I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, reset my calendar or, you know, try to have these chunks of times here. And you'll see as time goes on, you maybe get more lax about, okay, I'll take this meeting here, and I'll take this meeting there. So I don't know, you kind of need to keep revisiting your schedule, because making it sustainable is really your responsibility, right? 
no one's going to come and tell you, hey, I think you're doing too much. I mean, they might, but I think it's better for you to recognize that and then figure out what you can offload to others. Tell me about working with the Airbnb senior management, the executive management. How do you ping them for their, like what they're looking for strategically? And what do you, when you're looking at them, what do you seek to emulate? Yeah, I mean, so the way we're structured now is that, you know, businesses run autonomously. So we have a homes president and, you know, his name is Greg Greeley. And we, I would say he is the person that, you know, we work, that I work with, you know, most closely in terms of the overall sort of um, executive leadership team and also the head of engineering. So I would say that, you know, on both sides, I spend, you know, a lot of time with them, you know, on the engineering side, making sure that, you know, we have, you know, an aligned set of priorities and, you know, direction of where we're headed. And then with Greg on the sort of homes business side, right, making sure we're making the right business decisions. And, you know, there are sort of uh, projects that, that sometimes cut across different teams. And, you know, that's when, oh, there's a problem. Uh, we're not focusing on some area. And so that's when either, you know, I have a proposal or somebody else has a proposal. And then we share that with the executive team. So I would say that, you know, with the move to businesses, it's definitely, you know, a little bit more structured, the communication, which I think is good because, you know, a business has its clear goals and, and you know, we should be able to execute on it without needing too much support on a day-to-day basis. How has your interaction with the hiring process changed since you've become a director of engineering? Yeah, I mean, I think that if I think of my role right now as uh, engineering lead for homes, a lot of it is actually has a lot of my time actually the last few months has been focused on, you know, how do we make sure that the business as a whole can can bring in sort of um, engineering candidates at the at the speed that we want. Um, So I actually partner very closely with the recruiting team, you know, on sort of what are the goals that we want to meet, what are the type of engineers we want to bring in, how many recruiters do we need for that, you know, how can we have all engineers managers, you know, contribute to bringing in great candidates. You know, I've been spending a fair bit of time on just reviewing this whole process. But if I take a step back and think of the hiring process, I think that's one area where just as you scale, things really have to change. Like an example is at the beginning, you know, all eng managers used to review the packets that would come in, right? Like I remember I would read, you know, every single sort of interview feedback. But then, you know, you realize quickly that that doesn't really scale. So you need to figure out then, okay, like do you set up on-call rotations for people that need to definitely, you know, to make sure somebody reviews the packet and says, yes, this is a go or a no-go. And so, you know, that's one example of just how that process is to scale. And there are many such changes that we've had to make. One thing I am curious about is tooling, not at the engine, directly at the engineering level, but these next generation office productivity tools. So things like Slack and Asana and Airtable. Are there any of these that have really changed your way of thinking about communication or have really led to dramatic step changes or or just complete alterations in in productivity or team management? I mean, I would say the biggest one that we use right now is Slack. And, you know, even just when we want to make a, uh, we want to deploy uh, code to production, you know, that's where the communication happens. So, so it's definitely a big part of our workflow. And, you know, ultimately, you know, it's, I think all of these tools, even how you write documents, 
right? It's these things are very important. And a lot of times, you know, what's important is also consistency, you know, making sure that everyone is is using the same set of tools, because that's where you really get the efficiency. So it's so absolutely, I mean, I, I these, these workplace management tools are, are super important. And, you know, I hope that can, they continue to sort of evolve and, and add better features. So just to conclude, I'm wondering if there has been a particular challenge that you've encountered at the engineering management level, either a recurring challenge or a particularly bad or acute experience that people in engineering management who are listening could learn from. You know, I I would say that, you know, people sometimes think that engineering management is a very glamorous job. This is more so for actually individual contributors who are considering the path and also, you know, senior management. I think people assume that, oh, okay, you know, you get to make all these decisions and, oh, it must be so great. And, you know, I think the, the, the truth is that you also have to deal with, you know, a lot of problems. And, you know, the larger your org is, the higher the likelihood that there is some problem. And, you know, you just have to uh, make sure that that's what you want and that's what you feel excited doing. Have there been any books that have been particularly useful to you from the management point of view? I like reading about, you know, business strategy and and seeing how people, you know, think of how people run their companies. So actually one that, you know, we're doing a bit of a book club within Homes is uh, it's called The Goal. So I've been reading that. And then another book that actually I really want to read is, you know, Elad Gill just wrote this book and I want to get my hands on that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, Serbi, this has been really great talking to you. I appreciate you coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. Wow.